College football is in for an epic couple of days as conference championship weekend begins tomorrow night. Will there be a shift among the top four teams in college football come Saturday late night? The battle for NFC supremacy is on the line in Philadelphia as the 49ers pay a visit in another lackluster NFL Sunday schedule. New owner syndrome strikes again, this time in Carolina, and a possible return for Aaron Rodgers? Questions surrounding the NBA Cup when it comes to integrity? What? A landing spot for a former Blackhawk great and another coaching change in the NHL. And will the MLB hot stove start to heat up as the winter meetings are just days away with some big names rumored to go elsewhere? We're on the eve of the final month of 2023, so get ready for some good old-fashioned high-octane rapid-fire sports talk as I close out November in grand style. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it, he is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the j Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. The last day of November, just 32 days until January the 1st. I understand life isn't a midterm or final exam that we try to cram as much as we can before the big test, but people, do not rest on your laurels and wait until then. It'll be here before you know it. Plan that big project, work on yourself, or even take a leap of faith if that's in your heart. We have this one life to live. Don't wait for it to happen. Get out there and do it. Speaking of which, I'm about to do what I love as I share my thoughts on everything that the sports universe has to offer as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Monday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And yes, take heed to what I just said, people, because again... December is going to zoom, it's going to fly by, and you don't want to wait till January 1st to get all those things that I mentioned, or whatever that's happening in your life, started at that time. Because as we all know, time is our most valuable asset, and we certainly don't want to waste it just to think that, ah, I'll wait till after the holidays, after the Christmas parties, New Year's, etc. Uh-uh. Start today. Where I'm going to start as far as this podcast goes is college football, because tomorrow night is going to tee off what should be a fascinating weekend. And it revolves to me around two teams that are going to play a huge factor in all this. And that first one is the Washington Huskies who will play tomorrow night Allegiant Stadium 
against Oregon, and they played early this year, as we know, and that was a barn burner, to say the least, where you have the two Heisman Trophy candidates, Bo Nix, the quarterback of Oregon, and Michael Penix Jr., the quarterback of Washington. And even though the Huskies were victorious in that game earlier this year, it was down to a field goal, 36-33, if you recall. That was sometime, I believe, in the middle of October. But times have changed since then. And even though the Huskies are undefeated and their offense has sputtered a little bit because think about it, although it was a rivalry game in-state against the Washington State Cougars, but they had to have that end around on that fourth and one deep in their territory to set themselves up for that game-winning field goal. And it was a game that Penix did not play well and may have cost him the Heisman when it's all said and done. And the Heisman could go to the other quarterback on the other side of the field especially if the Ducks happen to win tomorrow night in the Pac-12 championship. And how I look at this game, I'd want to say Washington only because they have this undefeated record and they've had this magical season, the final go-around here in the Pac-12. But something tells me that Oregon, they're going to play with that chip on their shoulder. They're going to look to see whether or not that the Huskies are going to come out the way they did in that first go-around. And something tells me that Oregon, who I feel is a team that, I'm not going to say they're on a quest or a destiny, and as it is, they could still sneak in through the back door, but they have to have a few things fall in the right way in order for them to get to the Final Four. And with this being the first big game, because if Washington were to lose, somebody else is getting in. And that's an automatic. It's possible it could be Oregon. It's possible it could be Texas. And it could even be Alabama, which would then highlight the next big game of the weekend, and that's the SEC championship between Georgia and Alabama. But before I even get to that, I really feel that Oregon, they're going to look at this game as a payback game. It's going to be tough to beat the Ducks twice in a matter of, what, six or seven weeks? And the Huskies, like I said, they have not played well here down the stretch. They played a lot of close games. Even the game at Oregon State was tooth and nail, and they had a scratch and claw to win that game. And even when you take a look at the schedule, based on that last performance there against the Ducks, you've had some high-scoring affairs. The game against Utah, USC, we understand, even at Stanford. But the Husky defense is not great. And Oregon, I think they're going to do a little bit and then some in order for them to win this game because I'm sure even if they don't make it into the Final Four, the last thing that they would want is to have Washington hang up another 40 on them to know that they would had beaten them twice. Washington will be a shoe in to make it to the Final Four as it is. They're one of the top four teams in the country to go along with Michigan, to go along with Florida State and Georgia. But Oregon, I really feel that in my gut, They're going to prevail in this game. I think it's going to be personal. I think it's going to be a situation where Bo Nix is going to want to get that Heisman Trophy to grab it away from Michael Penix to erase that undefeated season there by the Huskies. And I could see them starting the motion for what could be a calamitous, even epic weekend when it comes to what the committee is going to do when it's all said and done. Now, if Washington wins Friday night, who knows? That could actually set the tone for what could happen the rest of the way. But the good thing is, is that it's a standalone game there tomorrow night. 
You have all the other games pretty much on Saturday. And yes, I understand there's another game on the schedule when you look at college football, but nobody's caring about New Mexico State and Liberty. But with that, ABC, 8 o'clock tomorrow night, the college football world, and you would think the big sports fan, they're going to tune in to see what's going to happen here. And who knows how this is going to unfold. I think Oregon is going to win. I'm going to root for Washington because I want to see them go undefeated. But I would not be surprised in the least if the Ducks win and... Something tells me I think they will. Just based on revenge from the game earlier this year, Bo Nix versus Michael Penix, them wanting to erase that undefeated season. So, therefore, I think Oregon is going to shine bright when it's all said and done somewhere around 11.30 tomorrow night. And then that's going to lead us into the next day where you have Oklahoma State and Texas in the Big 12 Championship. Now, Texas does have a way to get in, but they're going to need a lot of help. And that's why the Georgia-Alabama game is enormous. Now, these two teams, they know each other very well. SEC Championship game two years ago where Alabama won. And then Georgia beating Alabama in the National Championship. And Kirby Smart versus Nick Saban. We know the history between those two. But for this game tomorrow and Alabama coming off of that miraculous win against Auburn there last Sunday, or excuse me, last Saturday. And for Georgia, who has had a good season to go along with the two prior that have culminated in national championships. But this isn't a vintage Georgia team when you look at the quarterback, Carson Beck, as opposed to the predecessor in a one Stetson Bennett as he just steamrolled throughout the course of two seasons, two postseasons, and now it's up for Beck to deliver a third, a three-peat for the Georgia Bulldogs. And will they be able to get over this hump? knowing that Alabama's coming in as hot as a pistol. And yes, I understand they had a miraculous fourth and goal from the 31, a completed pass there in the back of the end zone by Isaiah Bond in order for them to be in this game, let alone have a shot to get into the college football playoff. But Georgia, I could see Alabama being in this game, and I could see this being a close game as you get into the second half. But something tells me Georgia, I'm sure they've heard it all week long, and I'm sure that the coach is probably getting into their players to say, everybody's counting us out. People think that if we lose this game, we may not even make it into the Final Four, which I feel that if Georgia does lose, they still belong. Why? Alabama, obviously they're Alabama. And we know if they win, they're going to be in no matter what. But even if Georgia were to lose, and this is where it could get topsy-turvy, to where Georgia, I still believe they deserve to go based on their track record over the last two years. But if Georgia were to lose and Washington were to lose, imagine what the committee is going to have to do to sort this whole thing out as to who the Final Four will be. Now, if it goes chalk to where Washington wins, to where Georgia wins, to where Florida State, you would think that they're going to beat Louisville in the ACC Championship, which will be 8 p.m. Saturday night. And then Michigan, they should upend Iowa, even though Iowa, I understand they have a very good defense, but their offense is from hunger. If you give them first and goal throughout the course of the game, and on six consecutive drives, I'm sure half of them will end up being field goals, maybe even more than that. That's how bad their offense is. So you would think Michigan should be victorious there. Saturday night where they'll go up against the Louisville-Florida State game and that will be on Fox. But 
it's all contingent on what happens there tomorrow night and 4 p.m. in Atlanta, Mercedes-Benz Stadium between Georgia and Alabama. Because if it's chalk, the top four that are there now are going to be the final four come New Year's Day. So that's why Washington, as well as Georgia, if they lose their championship games, then everything is going to be just haywire. Because you could argue if Texas wins, they could be in the Final Four. You could argue that Oregon, they could be in the Final Four. And chances are that if you get both picked off here, you would think it's going to be Michigan, Alabama, maybe Georgia, and you would think in all likelihood it could be Oregon. But then you have the Texas contingent to say, wait, 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 wait a minute. We beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa. And I understand Oregon beat Washington in a conference championship game. But we won our conference championship, which is against Oklahoma State. No big whoop there. But considering they beat Alabama, what is the committee going to do at that point? And that's why this is fascinating. Because I don't expect Michigan to lose. I don't expect Florida State to lose. But Washington and or Georgia can lose. And where this all ends up is going to be a big giant put your name in the hat, pick it out, and chances are that's going to be the team. And one more time, if it's chalk, forget about it. You're going to have your final four. I understand people are going to say, oh, but Florida State's not going to have their quarterback, Jordan Travis. Obviously had that leg injury a couple weeks ago, and they may be sacrificial lambs to whomever they play, whether it is Georgia or even Michigan for that matter. But come Monday, we will dissect it. We will break it all down. I want it to be a little bit crazy. I'm not rooting for Alabama. I hope that Georgia wins and Washington loses, even though I am rooting for Washington. But I think Washington has a much more bigger shot to lose than Georgia does. Because I think Georgia, I get it. They're going to lose one of these days. They can't go off on a winning streak that it's what? Probably in the... 30s at this point, considering that they've had the back-to-back championships, and now they've run the table here to the point where if they win an SEC championship, then they're going to go for a three-peat. So I could see Georgia winning more than I could see Washington winning as far as these two games, but as we all know, anything could happen. And one more time, come Monday, we're going to see what's going to happen with the committee as they'll convene there Sunday night, and if it's going to be a situation where the Huskies and the Bulldogs lose, I do not envy him. And if they do lose, I would think it's going to be Alabama, Michigan, Florida State wins, they got to go, they're going to be 12-0. and And then that final team, I would think it's going to be Oregon, but Texas, they have an argument to be in that Final Four based on them beating Alabama earlier this year, and on the road. So that's how I look at it. But you would think Bo Nix, because he's going to be a Heisman Trophy finalist, if it's a situation where they do beat Washington and then Georgia does lose, even though I believe Georgia does belong there in the Final Four, even if they do lose to Alabama, but I would think Oregon belongs there. So we shall see. I am looking forward to it. It's going to be intriguing to say the least, and it all starts there tomorrow night with the Pac-12 Championship. And remember, people, this is going to be the last of its kind here. And what I mean by that is next year you're going to have the 12 teams making the playoffs. So when you get to conference championship week, 
This is going to be an afterthought. Because all these teams that I'm discussing here, they're going to be in the playoff no matter what. So, one more time. The anticipation, hopefully the drama, hopefully the excitement. This is the last go-around for college football as we know it when it comes to the four-team playoff on New Year's Day. Because next year, it's going to be a whole different set of circumstances where you're going to look at this weekend and it's going to be, all right, well, it doesn't matter because if Georgia and Washington were to lose, they're going to make it to the playoff anyway. It's just a matter of where they're going to be seated. And as we know, even if Washington were to lose and let's say they fell to a five, where they had to play the five against the 12, they certainly will be in contention for a national title. It's not as if they become a five seed that, oh, their chances of winning the whole thing, they're going to be shot. Not the case. But this year... Enjoy it, people, because we're not going to see the likes of having this setting to where these teams absolutely need to win to get in as opposed to next year when it's, all right, even if they got blown out 42-3, to they're still going to be in the playoff no matter what. So now as I turn my attention to the pros and a very lackluster schedule, but it's highlighted by a game that has implications abound, and this is where... I feel that this game has so many different tentacles when we look at Sunday, 425, Lincoln Financial Field between San Francisco and Philadelphia. Because when you look at it from a San Francisco standpoint, they're going to want to get back into that building because the last time they visited was in the NFC Championship game, and we know what happened there to the point where Brock Purdy, after four plays, was gone, or maybe it was less than that, because I believe he tried to come back later and... He couldn't go and couldn't throw a pass five feet, let alone five yards. So knowing that they didn't have their quarterback and we understand the run that he was on last year to get to that point and not having him in the game to kind of see where Brock Purdy stood as far as what he did from the time he came into that game. I believe it was against the Dolphins midseason when Garoppolo hurt his leg and then Purdy was on a magic carpet ride to the NFC title game before he got hit by Hassan Reddick, and then later we found out that he had a UCL injury to where he was done for not only just that game, but pretty much up until training camp. So the Niners are going to want to get back there to know that their team is fully loaded, healthy, stacked, and now let's see, mano a mano, I understand the stakes aren't as high as an NFC Championship game, but knowing that they're going to be well-rested because they didn't play 10 days A week ago today is when they played that game against Seattle, so they had a mini-bye coming into this game, and now they're going to see where they really, truly measure up against the Eagles, knowing that they're going to have a full squad, no excuses, etc. The second thing is, is that this is for, in all likelihood, the one seed in the NFC. Now, mind you, the Eagles are 10-1, and and the Niners are 8-3. So even though the... Eagles could afford to lose this game and not worry about them being deadlocked at the same record after Sunday's game. But that's going to go a long way because the Niners schedule lightens up quite a bit. Now, granted, they do have Baltimore coming into their building on Christmas Eve, or I believe it's Christmas night now that I think about it. So you have that game to look forward to. But they have Arizona, they have the Rams coming into the building. They have a schedule that is going to be a cakewalk. And they have Seattle coming into Santa Clara to play on the road. So you would think that the 
49ers will have a much favorable schedule to where the Eagles, they got to go to Dallas the following week. And then you would think for all intents and purposes, not that it's going to be a an easy game, but they do have to travel to the Pacific Northwest to play the Seahawks. And who knows how that game's going to go. We all know road games late in the year, coast to coast could be tricky. And even though it lightens up for the Eagles after that, where they play the Giants twice, sandwiched by the Arizona Cardinals. But you would think that if the Niners were to win this game, and although they'll be a game behind, but technically they'll be a half game behind because if they do draw even at some point between now and the end of the year, of course they have to win the game Sunday in Philly, then the Niners are going to be in pole position for the NFC and the road to the Super Bowl will have to go through San Francisco. And then the flip side of that is Philadelphia to where they're a three-point underdog in their building. And you know that the players, maybe not the coach Nick Sirianni, but they are hammering that home and almost putting it up as locker room bulletin board fodder. Now, I understand it's nothing against the Niners. It's not as if they picked the point spread that, oh, well, we're going to be a three-point favorite going into Lincoln Financial. I'm sure Vegas, when they saw this game, Maybe the 10-day layoff, maybe the Niners are back to their early season form after starting off 5-0, and losing those three games before the bye, and then now they're on a three-game winning streak to where they look unbeatable. Maybe that's a scenario where they feel that they're a three-point favorite, which is a joke. If San Francisco is going to be favored in this game, I would think it's going to be by one and a half tops. But three? That's a disrespect to the Eagles and what they've done, especially over the last few weeks, to where they beat the Cowboys in a tight game. Miami before that on a Sunday night. The game in Kansas City, as we know, when they were down by 10 and they came from behind. I get it. Marquez Valdez-Scantling dropped ball, which could have been a touchdown aside. And then last week, when they were able to beat the Buffalo Bills down by 10, the heroic 59-yard field goal by Jake Elliott at the end of regulation. And they have been on a roll, despite the fact that the Eagles haven't been anywhere close to the performance offensively that they've been last year. But the one thing that they've shown so far, and I talked about this on Monday's podcast, they've shown a lot of testicular and intestinal fortitude. And that's something you can't teach. That's something that you can't buy. And even if it's a situation where they're down by 10 in this game, and we all know San Francisco, they're front runners. They want to play from in front because they want to jam the ball down your throat, eat the clock, not make Brock Purdy make a bunch of plays as far as stretching the field or as far as him having to throw 35, 40 times a game. That is not the game plan for Kyle Shanahan. But even if they're down 10, let's say it's 20 to 10, early third quarter, the Eagles could certainly come back. Even if the game was in San Francisco, I would still feel confident that the the Eagles can rally and draw even or even take the lead. And that's the thing that I want to see on both sides to... Have the Eagles a little bit of adversity, and we've seen that all along, those aforementioned games against the Bills and Chiefs, but if we were to see that again against a Niner team and beat them, what more can you say about them? But even more so, if they jump out in front, similar to what they did last year in the NFC title game, have that 7 nothing lead, and then build from there, I get it, Purdy was out, so it was easy for them to kind of steamroll and have that avalanche going downhill to where they were just bum rushing the Niners and without a quarterback they had no shot 
But I truly believe that if the Eagles are going to play from in front, I don't know if the Niners are going to have the capability to come from behind. Because this Niner offense and this Niner team is built to play from in front, be from in front, and then let the defense take over. If it's going to be a situation where Brock Purdy is going to be down 24-14 with 10-50 to go in the fourth quarter, I'm not going to be a big believer in him to where they're going to have to pass more than they're going to run. And they don't want to rely on Purdy to have to throw the ball 35-40 times a game. He's in that 22-27 to attempt range to where he's going to be efficient, he's going to be effective, he's going to be that game manager, and he's been great. You can't knock him. He's had a couple of games, as we know. The Brown game, not great. That's the first one that comes to mind. But we haven't seen this Niner team play from behind, play with that sense of urgency to know that, oh, wait a minute, we're trailing here. We're going to have to maybe not scrap the game plan, but we're going to have to adjust here. And one thing we've seen with Kyle Shanahan, whether from in front in a Super Bowl as an offensive coordinator in Atlanta versus New England, or even as a coach, head coach with the Niners in the Super Bowl against the Chiefs a few years ago, he hasn't been that type of coach that is above and beyond the other coaches in the league. And although he's a very good coach, but we haven't seen him be a great coach. Offensive mind, due to his dad, Mike Shanahan, he's brilliant. But as a head coach, we have not seen that. So that's why this game just has fascination and just a lot of intrigue, you name it. Throw any adjective, superlative you want because this is going to be for all the marbles in the NFC. If the Eagles win, it's a lock. If the Niners win, they inch closer. And that's why, more so than any other game that's on the schedule this week, is not only the best game by far, but pretty much the only game to watch. Because your schedule is as follows. Well, first off, the bye teams, you have six teams that are on a bye. And that includes the Ravens, the Bills. I'll give you the Vikings only because they're in the playoff mix in the NFC. Forget about Vegas. I understand they're on the fringe and in the hunt, whatever. But you have the Bears you're not going to see, thank God. And the Giants, the same, thank goodness. So six teams are not going to be on the schedule. So that's going to hurt the league. And especially when you have Baltimore... And Buffalo out. Your Thursday night game, Seattle at Dallas. Seattle, this is their last gasp. And I get it, they could get in as a seven seed. But Dallas, who plays well at home, and they beat up on teams like this that are right beneath them or even far below them. So I could see this being a situation where maybe Seattle hangs in there for a half, but Dallas will blow their doors off. And they will be 9-3 and three going into the following week where they'll wait for Philadelphia to come into that building a week from this Sunday. Other than that, here's your slate for Sunday afternoon. Forget about the Monday night game. Cincinnati at Jacksonville. Ugh. No Joe Burrow, Jake Browning. No thanks. Your one o'clock window. India at Tennessee. The Chargers at New England. Detroit at New Orleans. And I get it, New Orleans is tied for first, but seriously. Atlanta at the Jets. And I'll get to them in a minute. Arizona at Pittsburgh. Miami at Washington, who signed Jason Pierre-Paul, by the way, to make up for Jalen Phillips, who blew out his Achilles on the Black Friday game. And now that I think about it, and I talked about this last year, Bradley Chubb, who they got in the trade deadline from Denver last year, 
What has this man done in a Dolphin uniform who was supposed to be a game-wrecking pass rusher? He was a guy that bookended with Von Miller in his first couple of years there in Denver, and you felt it was going to be that big-time threat, considering that the Dolphins needed that pass rusher and was a guy that you would think would be that force in the defense and have a guy that you're going to look at and say, all right, well, we're going to have to key on this guy as far as being just the one that we're going to have to look out for. Well, what has he done as far as 2023 is concerned? Six sacks. I'm not trying to say you got to be up there with Miles Garrett and TJ Watt and Daniil Hunter of Minnesota. No, but can you at least be nine, ten sacks in the league? You got six. Goes to show you how much $100 million is going to cost you for a pass rusher. Well, they bring in Pierre Paul, which is good for them. Let's see if he brings a lot of that experience. Super Bowl with the Giants, even with Tampa a few years ago. So I think that's a good pickup for the Dolphins. But Miami at Washington, seriously. And that is just your 1 o'clock window. Denver at Houston is also the last part of the 1 o'clock window, which is good because Denver's been on a five-game winning streak. I know Houston is starting to reel a little bit. But that is a huge game for playoff implications in the AFC, especially when it comes to the wild card. So tiebreakers abound. That is a huge game. After that, Carolina at Tampa. Cleveland at the Rams. And then your NBC Sunday night game is Kansas City at Green Bay. No, it's not Mahomes and Rodgers. And even though the Packers have played well of late and Jordan Love has picked it up as far as his play goes, and I get it, it's Lambeau Field. It could be cold, maybe even snowy. But that's not a game that I'm going to 820 turn on the set and, oh, I got to watch this game. I know it's Mahomes, I know it's KC, but uh uh-uh, not this guy. That is your schedule. So San Francisco, Philadelphia is by far the highlight, and to me, that is the only game to watch this weekend. Yeah, I get it, Denver-Houston, and you got the Thursday night game tonight, but uh uh-uh. Other than that, there is absolutely nothing to watch on the NFL slate. And speaking of Aaron Rodgers... So he suits up for practice there yesterday, and you caught some video there, some clips. Him not really doing too much. Yeah, he was trying to move a little bit laterally and even go backwards. And you see him throwing a couple of passes there to, I guess, one of the staff members, or maybe it was a teammate, who knows. But Aaron Rodgers, now this is unbelievable to think that 11 weeks after surgery, here he is on a practice field trying to shake out a few cobwebs and try to start up that engine, especially on that Achilles, to see how it's going to respond. But he's still 21 days away from being activated on whether or not he's going to play. And I believe the first game he could play is on Christmas Eve against the Commanders. The Jets are 4-7. Now they have Atlanta coming in. If they can't beat the Falcons, then there's no hope for them. But I can't even believe I'm going to get into this. Now the Jets schedule does lighten up here to where they play the Falcons. Now they have the Texans coming into their building. And who knows, if the Texans lose to Denver... They could be that young team that is starting to reel a little bit. And who knows, if the Jets could just get one win under their belt and go into that game next week, maybe there's hope. But then they have to go to Miami to play the Dolphins, which I get it, Jet-Dolphin games are usually close. Now, I understand notwithstanding the Black Friday game. But there's no way that Aaron Rodgers should come back even if he is 100% healthy and the doctors clear him to play. Now, is this going to be a thing where 
if Rogers, his therapist, or his doctors, if they green light him to go, is he going to have enough power, and you would think he will, to go to the coach or even go to Woody to say, I want to play one game at home, Washington, I just want to show the fans that I'm healthy, raring to go, and that's that. Are they going to say, Aaron, we love your dedication, we love your fortitude, your stick for you to come back, you've shown and proved that you are able to overcome this injury. But you know what? Let's save it for next year to where you're fully healed, not only just physically, but even spiritually and psychologically. Because remember, he's going to have to avoid a pass rush from an offensive line that is Swiss cheese. It's not as if it's the cowboy line of the 90s. It's not as if it's one of the great offensive lines known the man. We know that all he has to do, similar to what we saw there on that Monday night against Buffalo, drops back, even if he tries to avoid a rush, even if he slowly tries to get down to the MetLife turf, if he turns a certain way, that is it. Blows out a tire, and then you got to worry about him having to deal with an offseason. And remember, if you're Woody Johnson, that entire front office, and Robert Sala, you should know by now, you are the New York Jets. This would be a Jet-like thing to happen. Not only Rodgers getting hurt four plays into his Jet career, but for him to come back in season. To come back, watch him throw a couple of touchdown passes. Everybody's going to be up in arms and go crazy to be like, wow, I can't wait for next year. And then he'll go out in the second half, and on the first play, that's it. He blows out the other Achilles, or blows out an ACL, or God forbid, ruptures the surgically repaired Achilles that he has on his leg, and then he's really shot. Remember, he's going to turn 39 on Saturday. He's not 29. So if I am Aaron Rodgers, and more so if I'm the Jet front office and coaching staff, I would say, Aaron, we love everything you've done just to get back to this point. And it is heroic. And we know the ego and everything and his preparation and just his recovery, whether it's done holistically, where God willing for him, that is fantastic. But we're going nowhere this year. We're not making it to the playoffs. And even if this was touch football, we still want you to be 100% come next year. We don't want anything to upset the apple cart. You would think that'd be the case, right? But let's see. Does Aaron Rodgers overrule the coaching staff to say, give me one half, give me a quarter. I want to show the fans. They need to say, Aaron, you need to sit your ass over there on the bench and just take it easy. Thanks, but no thanks. But we shall see. And then you had the situation with the Carolina Panther owner, David Tepper, firing Frank Reich 11 games into his Carolina Panther career. Is it his fault completely? Absolutely not. Talk about a team that doesn't have an offensive line. Bryce Young been under siege all year, and he's had his moments. He hasn't been great. And he's even had to defend Tepper, that is, his number one pick, considering what C.J. Stroud has done in Houston this year. But Tepper is a guy similar to Steve Cohen. Now, mind you, Cohen was a lifelong Met fan, or so he was. Based on some of the rumblings I've heard, he was a Yankee fan growing up, but then obviously became a Met fan later on, maybe in the 80s, who knows. But be that as it may, we know that he's been a part of the Mets as a minority owner and has been a Met fan for however long it's been. And 
bought the team, tried to do what it takes, and I'm going to get to him later on, people, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. Ugh, the Mets, please, seriously. But for Tepper, who made his money in hedge funds, similar to Steve Cohen, and that's the tie-in, but having his new shiny toy, the new owner syndrome, being the new kid on the block, firing coaches left and right, from Steve Wilkes to interim coaches, in the four years that he's owned the team, he's had, including interim coaches, six. And now he's got to find another head coach come sometime in January. This guy is not only a clown, but he is a buffoon. Because he's just a guy that wants to flex his muscles to say, I'm part of the big boys club, or you want to call it the old boys club, depending on who you are, whether you're Jerry Jones or Robert Kraft. But he's part of that exclusive club of being an NFL owner, so he wants to flex his muscles and throw his weight around, thinking that the hedge fund business is similar to the NFL, which is not. And not that I know anything about the hedge fund business or... A to Z about the NFL, but at least I have an inkling of how the NFL works just based on investing in watching, following, and reading the tea leaves for, what, 46, 47 years? So I have maybe just an inkling. Not a lot. Because I've never been in an office. I've never been an executive. I get it. Trust me, I'm not trying to say that I have any credentials when it comes to the NFL as far as how it is to run a team. But the way he's running it, Trust me, I could go in there and maybe do, just do a smidge better than what he's done. And this is a guy who was a minority owner for the Pittsburgh Steelers years ago, and you would think he would have learned from the Roonies to say, wait a minute, they've had three head coaches in 54 years, and I've doubled that in four years. The guy's a joke. And the organization is a laughingstock. And we've seen these guys come in. Matt Ishby in Phoenix trying to throw his weight around with Nikola Jokic and make the trade for Durant and do this and do that. And I get it. He's trying to make his team better and so on and so forth. And we could talk about him just wanting to be a part of that old boys club, etc. But how are the Suns doing this year? And what their record is at this stage of, and I get it, it's just, what, a month old? The season? A little bit more than that when you think about it? Because it started October 24th? But it's not as if the Suns have gotten off to a flying start. Let's just call it that way. Now, they played better of late, but they're fifth in the Western Conference. It's not as if they're one or two. So for Tepper, he needs to go back to the drawing board and then some because he is running his franchise, his organization, not into the ground, but well beneath it. And if he doesn't shape up pretty soon, who knows? Maybe the fan base is going to ship out. The 16,000 loyal Carolina Panther fans that are out there. So that's what I got with the football, both college and pro. Let me see what else I got here. Nothing else to really discuss. Let me turn my attention to the association as I lace up my high tops to get into that. And this is one of the reasons this NBA Cup has not really worked out. When we look at what's happened here over the last 48 hours, and I talked about it on Monday, how the NBA Cup is going to start Monday. You're going to have the quarterfinals, semifinals, and the finals next Saturday on ABC. But when you have teams, and even more so players, quoted coming out to say that the integrity of the sport has been compromised, The Knicks, Josh Hart against the Charlotte Hornets a couple nights ago when they won 115-91 and the game is out of reach and 
Thibodeau is keeping his players in the game because of point differential in order to qualify for this NBA Cup to where Tom Thibodeau had to go to Steve Clifford, the coach of the Hornets, to kind of explain what's going on, similar to what we saw in Boston, to where Joe Mazzulla had to go to Billy Donovan to explain, yeah, the reason why I have Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum in the game in the fourth quarter with six minutes to go, even though we're up by 25, is because we have to worry about a point differential in order to make it into the tournament. And then Donovan just has to shake his head and say, okay, I understand. Thanks for explaining. No ill will. No feelings that are going to be harbored from here on out. Seriously? So this is what it's come down to when we have a scenario where teams are trying to qualify for, let's face it, a meaningless NBA Cup. I mean, what's going to happen when this team next Saturday is going to win the whole thing and each player gets a million dollars and that's good for the 11th and 12th man on the team or the rookies, whatever. That's good. And this is the first of its kind, so on and so forth. But is there going to be a banner ceremony for the team that wins and they're going to raise it up to the rafters sometime before Christmas? Now think about this. The Lakers are 4-0 and in their group play, so obviously they qualify for the quarterfinals. Let's just say the Lakers win the NBA Cup. Is there going to be a banner race to the Staples Center i.e. Crypto.com Arena to their rafters? Or is that going to be a thing where even, let's say, the Celtics win or another team? I don't even know. Did the Sixers qualify? I believe they did. Now, granted, the Sixers haven't won a championship in forever. 1983, 40 years. But seriously, is this what it's going to come down to? And this is why I couldn't wrap my arms around this. And I wanted to, people. I wanted to look at this past whatever it is, three-week stretch to say, all right, let's see if this is going to at least pique my interest, generate any type of buzz. And the people that I've talked to who are sports fans, they have said nothing about it. It's just a ho-hum regular season. Yes, we can talk about the courts and the bright colors and just, to me, that was an eyesore and that just took away from this whole NBA Cup thing. But I got to admit, is this an F? No, I won't go as far as saying that. But this certainly is not an A or a B in my book. This is somewhere in the middle. And you know I'll have my fingers on the pulse next week when we get to the pomp and circumstance that will take place in Vegas where this whole semifinal and the breakdown of what this NBA Cup's going to mean or how this is going to shake down. But... Could you imagine a team that is prestige as the Lakers or Celtics, or I'll say Sixers for that matter, if the Sacramento Kings win the whole thing and they have an NBA Cup and they raise a banner to the roof, it's going to be comical, but it's okay, it's the Sacramento Kings. They haven't won anything good for them, great. But are the Celtics and Lakers going to have that in their building as if it's meaningful as an NBA championship? And I hope the players don't say that. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if Jason Tatum... If they win and they say, wow, this is an accomplishment, this is great, this is something that maybe we could hang our hat on to lead us to a championship. What? It's an NBA Cup in December! And I'm not saying Tatum's going to say that. I hope he doesn't. I hope I'm wrong, but that's just my point. When you have players come out to where Josh Hart 
said that, yeah, I feel weird that we're out there in the fourth quarter and the game is out of reach and we're still trying to score just so we can have a point differential in order for us to qualify for this tournament. It's comical. It's a farce. I don't know what else to say, people. I mean, ugh. And who knows? I'm sure this is going to be annual every year. Hopefully, they reconvene and they think about this over and go through this a little bit more in depth. But who knows? We're going to have to wait and see how next week and how that's going to play out in order for this thing to really be a success. Because as of right now, to me, it is an afterthought. And then you have this situation with Josh Giddy. I bring this up only because you had the Wanda Franco. And this goes back to last week. I know I didn't bring this up on Monday. But it was brought up again this week to Giddy in a press conference to where, obviously, no comment. He wasn't going to expound on these allegations with him having a relationship with an underage girl. And all it does is dredge up what happened in the summertime with Wanda Franco. And who knows how that's going to Unfold, but for Giddy, a guy who's on an Oklahoma City team that has played well here out of the gate, they're amongst the top four in the West, a young team led by Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who you would think they're going to be on the come up, especially as we get toward the end of the decade with all the draft picks from the Paul George trade and everything they've done here over the last few years, and Chet Holmgren, etc., This could be a distraction. Now, we don't know the extent of it. Obviously, there's an investigation pending as to how long this relationship has been, who knows how old the girl is, etc. Wanda Franco may be a little bit different only because there's been more than one girl that's been tied in with these allegations. And from what we've seen, allegedly, that the one girl that we've seen pictures of on the internet has been maybe a 14 year old now the situation with this girl here we don't know but who knows now it's not as if Giddy is one of the top 20 players in the league we understand that he's a very good player a complimentary player on a team that is on the come up and a guy that could be a future all star where Franco was arguably the face of the Tampa Bay Rays considering they gave him an 11 year contract worth in upwards of $230 million. So Giddy is not that, but still the NBA is going to have to deal with this and maybe have a fallout to the point where Giddy may get suspended or who knows may get even expelled depending on what comes out here throughout this investigation. So we will have to wait and see what will come out of this. If anything, maybe it's, Who knows? I'm not going to unpack things that I don't know. Not going to go there. But at the very least, the optic does not look good. And as far as the association on a whole, and I get it that the in-season tournament is going to take precedent because that's going to be the tie-in into the weekend and obviously into next week. The Magic have played well. I talked about them on Monday. They've now won eight in a row. They've been on fire. And they're amongst the likes of the Celtics, the Bucks. And if you want to go back to that podcast, you could definitely hear what I have to say about the Magic. But they've been stupendous here. You cannot argue what they've done 
over the course of the last few weeks. I know the Warriors have really hit the abutment here, 8-10. and 10. You even had Clay Thompson coming out saying, I don't care what the critics have to say. And who knows what's really going on there, considering that Draymond just came back from his five-game suspension. I talked about that on Monday, where he had no regrets about the headlock that he put on Rudy Gobert. And Steve Kerr even saying that what he did was inexplicable and inexcusable, etc. And I'm paraphrasing there. And who knows if there... I'm not going to say there's a disconnect, but something's going on there to the point where this team has underachieved. And I believe they started their season 6-2. and two. I'd have to go back and check so we could look. 6-2 and two and their record is 8-10. and 10. Do the math. 2-8 and eight here over the last 10 games, which I believe that is exactly as I'm looking at the standings now. That's how they performed here over the last two and a half weeks or so. But besides that, if you want to talk about Mark Cuban, now looking to see whether he's going to have to give up. Now, he's not going to give up the whole ranch, but there seems to be an agreement in place for a group to buy the Mavericks, who would, I believe, have 57% of the stake in the organization, where Cuban will still have a lot of the day-to-day operations and still have his fingerprints on what goes on there in Dallas. But as far as the majority of the franchise, that's going to go to the families of the Adelson and Dumonts, where they are casino moguls. I believe they have the Sands in Las Vegas. So now that they are trying to acquire a majority of the ownership, I don't believe it's been approved as of yet. It has to go through, obviously, all the owners in the league, the NBA, etc., But it looks like Mark Cuban, who has been a fixture in this league going back 25 years, being the main guy, the head honcho there in Dallas, although he's still going to have a say in what goes on there, but the presence and the just overall aura of Cuban there, maybe it's his baseline seat, etc. I'm sure he'll still have that, but he's not going to be that guy that's going to run on the court or maybe have a lot to say in the press when it comes to the referees or what goes on in the league, that may go by the wayside. So something to keep in mind here when we're talking about one of the big-time owners of the NBA, although he'll still have a big stake in it, but won't have the majority as it's going to look like once it's approved, the Adelson and Dumont families will be the ones that will have the majority stake in the Mavericks when it's all said and done. As for the NHL... A couple of things going on there as I lace up my skates. I know the Wild fired their head coach, Dean Everson, who'd been there for quite some time. And I talked about them last week, how they've gotten off to a real slow start. They hired Josh Hines, the former Devils and Nashville Predator coach. They actually snapped a seven-game losing streak as they won the other night in St. Louis. So who knows if that change of scenery, that different voice in the locker room will be a boost For the Wild, as they've been a good team over the years, they've had put themselves in good standing there in the Central, have eclipsed 100 points, I believe, a couple times, but have not gone deep into the postseason. I believe two years ago, they went to a conference semi. Last year, they were out in the first round. So let's see if there's going to be any change there for the Wild to kind of get themselves on track and maybe be a fixture there when it comes to the top eight seeds in the NHL out West. The Red Wings signed Patrick Kane, the longtime Chicago Blackhawk, 
as well as a part-time Ranger last year in that midseason trade. He's still a couple of weeks away recovering from that hip surgery that he had in the offseason, but the Red Wings signed him. Let's see what he does because his time with the Rangers, as a lot of people thought, maybe he would be that final piece of the puzzle, but did not have a good stay here in New York. Maybe the hip had something to do with it, but let's see with a brand new and re-engineered hip, maybe he'll bring a lot to a Red Wing team that is looking to make some noise for the first time in a long time, a far cry from their halcyon days of the cup going back to the 90s, even into the early part of the 2000s and the latter part because they did win a cup there in 2008 against the Penguins. But the Red Wings, we shall see what they're going to do here to have a guy like that in the fold to go along with a guy like Alex DeBrincat. And they've had a good year to date. They are currently fourth in the Atlantic, 25 points. But having a guy like Kane as he tries to get himself prepared and revved up for the final what? 50 some odd games or so. We'll see how Kane does and how he fares there in the Motor City. And then Corey Perry, speaking of the Blackhawks, his former team, was released early in the week. Blackhawks, as we know, a team has started to fall flat on their face, even with the young rookie there, Connor Bedard. But Perry, who's been a longtime player in the NHL, most notably in Anaheim, a former MVP, Stanley Cup winner, has bounced around here over the years, whether it be in Montreal, Tampa, etc. But he was jettisoned due to conduct that was unacceptable, not only to the team, as far as their policies go, but to his contract. So you got to wonder, I don't know, there's some issues there where when they signed him in Chicago, but they had some stipulations in the contract that, hey, if you were to kind of go off the rails or whatever it was that happened there, that you're going to be out on the street. Well, that's what happened there. So Corey Perry gone. Who knows if he's going to get picked up elsewhere? That remains to be seen, but Perry is out there in Chicago, and the NHL, as we go through the slog of the season, has pretty much been status quo, although Colorado has overtaken Dallas in the Central, as Dallas has been in first place there pretty much for the last couple of weeks. You have a rock fight there between Vegas, Vancouver, and the LA Kings. They're separated by three points there out west in the Pacific. Rangers continue to play well. Seven-point differential between them and and Carolina in the Metropolitan. And the Bruins, who have now hit the skids here for them. They've lost three in a row. And we understand that the start they've gone off to, but they've hit a bit of an abutment here. Losing three straight, but still have a three-point lead over the Panthers. And then you have Toronto and Detroit there following suit, as well as Tampa. All three of those teams at 25 points. But that's what you have in the NHL as we continue to soldier on there. And then finally, saving the best for last, and I'll try to keep this nice and tidy. I'll get into it more on Monday because the winter meetings in Major League Baseball start Sunday. And you've already seen some activity in Major League Baseball, whether it's Sonny Gray signing with St. Louis three years for $75 million. Jason Hayward, I know this is small potatoes, one year in LA, $9 million. Hayward, we know he's fallen from, I won't say grace, but a guy who came up in the Brave organization, looked like he was going to be a rock, a fixture in Major League Baseball as one of the top players in the sport. Came in with Freddie Freeman back in 2010, but as we know, Freeman has gone up and Hayward continues to spiral down even when he signed that long contract in Chicago. As much as he was a cheerleader in that Game 7 against the Indians at the time in the World Series, when they had the rain delay and whatever he did to rally the troops 
to push them over the top to finally win a World Series for the first time in, what, 108 years? All right, kudos to Hayward. If that was his contribution to the Cubs winning a World Series, I'm sure the Cubs thanked him times 10. But he is not the same player that he once was, not to pick on Hayward or pound on him, but he signs with the Dodgers for a year. And with the rumblings going into the winter meetings that are taking place in Nashville, whether that is Juan Soto and the rumors of him being traded, who is going into his walk year of his contract, a lot of buzz about Dylan Cease being traded from the White Sox. The Dodgers could be a team that are going to look for his services. Of course, there's Shohei Otani. San Francisco, I think it's going to be, they're going to throw everything in the kitchen sink to try to bring him up the coast to the Bay Area. I can't pronounce his first name, but Yoshinobu Yamamoto, the Japanese kid who there's a bunch of suitors, where he's going to go. You would think it's going to be either the New York teams, the Red Sox, Dodgers. We know the teams that are going to break the bank for him. And then you have possibly, I put a question mark next to his name, Pete Alonso, as he's been rumored here, maybe going to the Cubs as they're going to be in hot pursuit of the Met first baseman. And that would be a huge mistake if you ask me. I've said it before and I'll say it one more time. If the Mets aren't going to fork over eight years, $200 million, they're off their rocker. And that's what it's going to take. Maybe even 175. Start there. How about that? He is a homegrown player. He has shown and proved that he could hit 40 and 100 in his sleep. All right, the average wasn't great last year. He was, what, 218? But he could hit 250, 260. You could live with that. His defense, I get it on his best day, is average. I was going to say above average, or slightly above. But it's average. We get that. But he's worked hard at it, but Keith Hernandez, he is not. But if the Mets are going to trade him, I don't care who they get back. That would be a mistake, and a huge one, because sluggers like that do not grow on trees. I'm sorry, I don't care who you are. And I don't care, David Stearns, he could have all the analytics up the wazoo. But to me... 45 and 110 or 118, whatever he had last year, I think it was 46, 118. That's hard to replace. I don't care who you are. Unless they're bringing in the next Albert Pujols, then I can understand that. But we all know the next Albert Pujols does not grow on trees. So we shall see. Sunday is where it's all going to start to flourish. And who knows what I'm going to say come Monday. And this is why I bring this up now because... It's going to be, I would think, a lot to digest, especially with the NFL. And I get it, it's going to be San Francisco, Philadelphia, and obviously the college football. I'll probably lead right into the baseball right after those two sports. But I have to throw this in as a parting gift before I say goodbye. I know it's one year. I know it's $13 million to Steve Cohen. That's nothing. And I get it. They're taking a flyer on him. And I'm sure their doctors looked at the charts and have doubled, triple checked under the hood to make sure that he was 100% physically sound. Okay, but put that all aside. Why would the Mets even consider signing Luis Severino for a year? Why? Did you not see his performance last year when he literally got battered, racked, shelled? Throughout his starts, 
And I don't want to hear about a couple of meaningless starts in between where, all right, he pitched five innings of two-run, five-hit ball. Please. He may have had one good start last year. There were starts that he barely got out of the first inning. Six runs in Dodger Stadium. Do you remember that on a Friday night? There were a plethora of games where he gave up a ton of runs. Another game, I think off the top of my head, was it the White Sox that scored nine runs in the first inning? That may not have been off of Severino. I'd have to go back and check. So let me not get ahead of myself. But if you look at Severino's stats, and I haven't even pulled him up, but his ERA had to be about six and a half. And this is for a guy who I get it was third in the Cy Young, I believe, as early as 2018. But when you think about it, early as 2018, when you get into next year, is still six years ago. So it's not two years ago. It's not even three years ago. It is more than a half a decade ago. And I'm not trying to pound on the guy. I'm not trying to knock him. I'm not trying to think that he's a guy that maybe this is going to be his new lease. That maybe this is his last shot to get anything close to a big payday. But for Severino, again, let's look at his stats last year. 29 years old, but that arm might as well be 36-37 because he's had Tommy John and he's had... I believe shoulder surgery on top of that. I think he had a rotator cuff injury as well that needed surgery. And granted that he's had some years, but 6.65 ERA, 89 to third innings, got roughed up left and right last year. And like I prefaced, one year, $13 million, it's not as if they gave him a three year deal worth $45 million. I understand. But when this guy gets batted around City Field or whatever other ballpark that he pitches in, and if it's June 15th and he's 2-4 and four with an ERA of over 6 and he's given up 15 home runs in 70-some-odd innings, I don't want to hear it. And I hope I'm wrong with this. But something tells me I'm going to be right because that's what my gut's going to tell me. So... If this is a sign of things to come for David Stearns and even Steve Cohen at this offseason, then wake me up come March 30th. And I understand he also signed Joey Wendell. He was on the Marlins last year, longtime Tampa Bay Ray. To me, he's a utility player and a guy off the bench, veteran guy, professional at bat, no batting gloves. All right, you need guys like that on your team. I understand that. He's not going to be a big-time player on this team. So he's just filling out the bench. But one more time. If Severino is going to be a sign of things to come for this offseason for the Mets. And I understand it's not going to be grandiose. I understand it's not going to be like it was the last couple years. Totally understood. But if this is the first domino to fall, I don't even want to know how the rest of the dominoes are going to fall. One more time. Wake me up March 30th when the season begins. I'll look at the roster then. And then I'll just sigh at that point. But we know that I'm going to be eyes peeled, ears open, and mouth is going to be rattling off to see what the Mets do this offseason. So you definitely want to stay tuned in the days and weeks to come on this podcast to hear what I have to say when it comes to that. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate your participation. It goes without saying how much 
I am just grateful and thankful that you carve a few minutes out of your precious day to listen to what it is to have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review, throw me a few stars, write a review. I would greatly appreciate it. It's going to increase the visibility with all the other podcasts that are out there. And for any questions, comments, or suggestions, you could do so at the following on my YouTube channel. Please subscribe there. Show me a like, review as well. On YouTube, at JReels, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the JReels Podcast, Twitter, X, JReels, one, just a number, and the old-fashioned way, the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. Please, hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals, because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood. It's in the DNA. If you couldn't tell by this past hour or so, then I got to go back to the drawing board, or maybe I just need to pump it up a little bit more, because I'm going to continue to deliver the fire, passion, fury, and energy with my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise, feelings on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels Podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>